This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode 13, Kyle and I are still talking about State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop. Glossop was convicted of arranging the murder of his boss, Barry Van Treese, at the Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma City on January 7, 1997. In part one, we looked at the case against Glossop, the legal proceedings that included two trials, a direct appeal, and state and federal post-conviction claims. In part two, we'll talk about Glossop's bid for clemency, his 2015 execution dates, his challenge to Oklahoma's use of midazolam in its execution protocol, and the September date that did not go forward because of a drug mix-up. Then we'll talk about the efforts of Colorado attorney Don Knight in the court of public opinion, Glossop's successive state post-conviction claims, and renewed efforts in the court of public opinion by Oklahoma legislators led by Representative Kevin McDougal. And good afternoon, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Lisa. Good afternoon. (laughs) Three weeks since we were last here. Yeah, I know. And it's only gotten hotter. I'm trying not to melt. I know. I know. And we've got August still. I know. So, um, yeah, if you can't take the hot weather, don't live in South Southern United States at all. No, absolutely. (laughs) So, but we'll survive. So uh, let's do a quick recap. of the, I guess, the information downloaded in part one. And there is, Glossop is one of those cases where there's a lot of information. Yeah, it's amazing. There is just, it's insane how much info there is and just all the details. You you would have, last night when I finished typing the Reed Smith report notes, the case, the today's episode was 50 pages or 54 pages of notes. And I was like, oh no, that's not gonna fly. (laughs) (laughs) So we're gonna break this into three pieces and we'll deal with uh, Reed Smith and the 2022 successive claims. Um, We'll kind of preview the successive claims because there's still a response by the state that's gotta be filed. And there's still, you know, the court the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals has to decide whether it's going to let Glossop develop any of these claims. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit toward the end of the show and then a little bit more next week or in two weeks. Excellent. So um, so anyway, the, the case started really on January 6, 1997 when motel owner Barry Van Treese discovered 
uh, a $6,101.92 shortfall at the Best Budget Inn, which was being managed by Richard Glossop in Oklahoma City. At that time, Fantrice told his wife that he intended to ask Glossop about the discrepancy. On uh, January 7th, uh, Vantrese was beaten to death in room 102 at the Oklahoma City Motel by the hotel maintenance man, Justin Sneed. Uh, he had come there the day before to deliver paychecks to employees and pick up money for deposit from the motel, uh, not only in Oklahoma City, but he traveled to Tulsa and then came back to Oklahoma City. Now, the plan apparently was to start renovating rooms. Uh, Vantrese also intended to go through room by room with a notepad to see what was going on with all of the rooms in the motel. And that may have been a cause for concern for Richard Glossop, as well as the shortfall in the money, missing records. I mean, there were a lot of issues going on under Glossop's management of the motel. On January 8th, uh, or late on January 7th, about 10 o'clock is when Barry's body was discovered. Uh, January 8th, Glossop was questioned and released. On the 9th, he was arrested carrying $1,200 days after being paid $429.33. Investigators say he began selling belongings and telling people he was leaving town after being questioned by police. Um, he disputes he says he wasn't leaving town he was just going to leave the motel well if you didn't do anything wrong and you weren't doing anything wrong before why would you want to leave the motel after the owner's murdered yeah exactly doesn't strike me as you know something an innocent person would do um on january 14th motel maintenance man justin sneed was found and arrested in Oklahoma City. He'd gone back to work with the roofers they he had come to, from Texas with. Um, and he was also arrested. He was carrying about $1,600. So my notes say $1,700, but I just copied this from uh, an article. Um, so I'm plagiarizing somebody else's work uh, <laughs> because it was a nice, neat summary. Right. Um, Nine, June 1998, uh, Snead testified and told an Oklahoma County jury that Glossop feared for his job and promised Snead $10,000 if he would rob and kill Van Trees. Jurors convicted Glossop and sentenced him to death. Snead had entered, had made a deal, but it's not really a sweetheart deal. I mean, it's portrayed as a sweetheart deal because he avoided the death penalty, but he pled guilty to first degree murder and he got life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, so the only thing he, he the death penalty was taken off the table. But that's he's the still only that was not the getting only, out of prison. Right. The only real benefit. And and I have to say, um, Justin's need pled guilty. He admitted to what he'd done. He admitted to the full extent of what he had done. He didn't say we got in a fight, he tried to sexually molest me, or you know, he didn't he didn't defame Barry Van Trees. He said, I went in the room, I beat him to death. It was first degree murder. I'm guilty. And that's, you know, that says a lot, I think, about him. And for all the later attempts to besmirch his character, 
uh, he's at least man enough to admit what he did, whereas Richard Glossop is not. On July 17, 2001, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals overturned Glossop's conviction, saying the evidence to support Sneed's testimony was extremely weak and finding Glossop's lawyer ineffective. Um, they also apparently addressed that jurors appeared to have consulted a Bible during deliberations, but their main reason for reversal was the ineffectiveness of Glossop's paid lawyer, Wayne Fornerat, who was just not prepared to go to trial and didn't know what he was doing um, and, and did not give Glossop a, an adequate defense. At least a basic... Yeah, yeah, basic counsel. So um, now in 2003, this isn't on the notes, but in 2003, uh, Glossop's new attorneys were advised of destruction of some evidence. There was apparently in 1999, while Glossop's appeal was pending, there was a box of evidence that had been at the DA's office after the trial that was transferred back to the Oklahoma City Police Department and somehow whoever did the paperwork said that the appeals in the case have been exhausted and that the evidence could be destroyed. We don't know who did that. We know who it was involved with it when it got back to the police department, but we don't know who at the di district attorney's office sent it back to the police department. So that's a, that's a mystery. Um, it doesn't appear that Glossop's attorneys at the time really felt that there was that anything to make of that. Um, it was a shower curtain that was inside the room. It was a wallet, keys, pair of glasses that were in the room, more likely than not belonging to Barry, Barry Ventries. Um, there were some papers, there was a deposit book, and some evidence that was seized from the car. Um, and so that's going to come into play later. But at the time of Glossop's second trial, it wasn't considered to be an issue. Um, on June, in June of 2004, a second Oklahoma County jury convicted Glossop and sentenced him to death in his attorney's appeal. On Jan in January 2008, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals upheld Glossop's conviction. Um, Glossop pursued state post-conviction claim, which was um, not granted, was denied by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. He went on to federal court and argued multiple issues at federal court. Uh, relief was denied in November of 2008. Uh, I think it's actually was a little bit later than that. I think they've got the wrong date on these notes. Uh, on July 25th, 2013, the 10th uh, Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Glossop's denial of relief by the district court, uh, finding that his second trial was fundamentally fair and citing trial testimony that showed that the motel books were short and that Van Trees had imposed a deadline for Glossop to straighten things out. Um, there's also, he, Van Trees may have said, I'm going to call the police. And Glossop is somebody who prided himself on an alleged lack of a criminal record. 
So this is yet another potential motive. Uh, especially if Glossop feels like he's done a lot, which if you read his January 8th and January 9th statements to police, he believed he had done a lot for the motel and a lot for Barry Ventrice. And he probably would have felt quite insulted that Barry Ventrice was now going to call the police on him over a little bit of money. Uh, June 25th, 2014, following a botched execution in April of 2014, uh, Glossop and 20 other inmates filed a federal lawsuit alleging that Oklahoma unconstitutionally allows an ever-changing array of untried drugs to be used during executions. The state argued that an improperly placed intravenous line, not the drug pro uh, protocol, was the culprit for the problematic execution. This is Clayton Lockett. And I think it's a case that we might want to talk about uh, down the line because, um, you know, there is a question as to whether he actually took actions on the day of his execution that led to problematic placement right. of a patent line in during his execution, which led to, and it, I, I know it sounds probably cold and I'm, I'm going to get some negative comments, but an execution is not botched simply because the inmate may or may not have felt some pain or some level of pain. Um, if the inmate dies, then the execution has been carried out. It wasn't carried out as efficiently or effectively, perhaps, but it was by no means botched. Right. Well, I kind um, of feel the same way. We have this weird, we have this weird idea that, you know, these, you know, people sentenced to death, murderers have to have a perfectly painless execution that if if you know even if the needle hurts going in and somehow that's cruel and unusual punishment which seems a little bit it's quite a it's it's quite a long ways from when they used to be drawn and quartered and hung and everything yeah else. yeah all right so um i think we've actually gotten in our recap to uh where we kind of stopped last time so i'm gonna i'm gonna cut the uh recap there uh i do however want to go over the very basic facts that undeniably prove richard glossop's guilt you can mince words you can dissect statements you can talk about who's not credible you can talk about who's a drug user or a drug addict or a thief but these are the facts that have nothing to do with anyone but richard glossop and in the absence of a logical reasonable explanation they paint the picture of guilt on the part of Richard Glossop, that he was more than just an accessory after the fact that he was involved in this murder from beginning. And this is what we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about. 
Uh, Glossop admitted that he knew at five o'clock a.m. that Sneed had killed Barry Ventries because Sneed told him that he killed Barry Ventries. In spite of his claim that he wasn't involved in the murder, Glossop lied to Deanna Wood about Sneed's statements to him and continued lying to other witnesses. Glossop made multiple inconsistent statements to witnesses and actively concealed Barry's murder for approximately 17 hours, giving Justin Sneed time to flee the hotel property after Barry, Barry's vehicle was found at the Weoki Credit Union. After Glossop's release from police questioning on the 8th of January, 1997, Glossop began selling property and telling witnesses he was moving on. Uh, he claims to this day that he wasn't really leaving the state, but if somebody tells me they're moving on, I think they're at least going to leave the jurisdiction that they're in at the moment. Uh, he claims the sale of property was paid for a lawyer, but when he went and met with David McKenzie, he did not pay him. He consulted with him. McKenzie called the police and said he's not going to talk to you. And he left McKenzie's office without giving him a penny of that $1,700 in his pocket. So those facts, he had $1,700. He got paid $400. He spent money while he was out at Walmart and all these other places prior to Barry's car being found. And yet he had $1,700 when he was arrested. And what he testified to at his first trial did not add up to $1,700. About what he spent. About what he spent and what he, what he made selling his belongings. Oh, and, gotcha. um, you know, one of the things that we see this in a lot of these cases, what's ironic is that with Richard Glossop's the West Memphis three, the story is constantly changing. There's a new story every time you turn around. Right. And yet sometimes those new stories don't address the facts that are the most damning. And that's, you know, that's, we've seen that in Richard Glossop's case. Um, he's, you know, come up with different explanations for where, how he got $1,700, including taking a hundred dollar advance after Barry's murder. Well, why would you take a hundred dollar advance if you've got money saved in a cookie jar that you've been saving since you started working? I mean, if you got money saved in a cookie jar, why would you ever take advances? Right. Um, there, it's there's a new story about somebody paying a loan back of one hundred fifty dollars. But at his trial, he testified to a, you know. A, and a certain amounts of money he sold belongings for what he you know what he spent and it didn't add up to seventeen hundred dollars there was twelve hundred dollars that could not be explained so um also when i talked about his statements to uh, bmo and cook on january 8th and january 9th i did miss a couple three pages of notes so I just want to go through a couple of things. Uh, one of the big issues was that Glossop told at least two people that he saw Barry Van Treese leaving at seven o'clock in the morning 
to go get breakfast and go pick up supplies for construction. And yet when he's confronted with those statements, he says, well, no, I thought I saw Barry. I saw a man with gray hair walking to Sinclair's and thought it was Barry. Um, and then he claimed that he never saw Barry and never saw his car parked out front. Um, he also, another thing Richard Glossop does, which is kind of a typical liar, a, a typical trait that I've seen in people who lie a lot, he will try to cast aspersions on somebody else who's damaging him. So right. he's talking about, you know, they're confronting him and he's saying, well, what about Kayla Persley? Kayla Persley's told different, told different stories about the guy who came to get the cab in the Sinclair station. And all her times are off. And, you know, then he claims he never told anyone that room 102 was running two cowboys, even though that's what he told Deanna. That's what he told at five o'clock in the morning. That's what he said Snead told him to Deanna. Uh, and interestingly enough, later on, um, when he said, uh, when he asked Deanna, should I tell the police that I think Justin had something to do with it? She said, no, because you're not sure. But he never actually said, Deanna, he confessed. Um, he also went on, he said Wes and Justin were skinheads that they were drug dealers. Um, he admitted to buying Justin food and paying for Justin's meals. He said he admitted Justin never had any money. He admitted he bought Justin cigarettes all the time. Um, he was angry at Justin for not trusting him enough to confide in him. And he claimed to have caught Billy Hooper renting rooms off the books and taking the money. Even though I think that was another another scheme of glossops that had been caught by Barry Van Treese. Uh, or by Billy Hooper, who had noticed that the number of rooms rented was never changing, even though there seemed to be more rooms rented than Glossop was reporting. So, um, and then on the 9th, when he's picked up after uh, meeting with David McKenzie and not paying him, he admits to police that he never should have lied on the 8th. So McDougal's like, nobody could tell us what Glossop lied about. Glossop says he lied. He, li he says his entire statement on the 8th was one big old lie. And um, then Glossop goes on to give more information, um, which will kind of come into play uh, in our next episode, uh, because Glossop's estimate of the money picked up by Barry Ventrice, or Glossop's statement about the money picked up by Barry, Barry Ventrice on January 6th was money receipts for nine days at $400 to $500 per day, which means Barry would have had about four to $5,000, which is in line with what Justin said was under the front seat of the car that Glossop told him to get from underneath the front seat of the car. Um, and, you know, he still didn't, 
he still tried to say this was all Justin and that I just didn't talk about it because I was scared of losing Deanna or Deanna told me not to. Um, but I mean, you know, Glossop gets this, this confession. He knows his boss has been murdered in room 102. And yet he goes back to bed and goes to sleep and tells Billy Huber to wake him up at noon. All right. Yeah. And then he goes to Walmart and goes, you know, buys some glasses and buys Deanna a ring. And, you know, that's those aren't the actions of somebody who had nothing to do with this. No, exactly. So um, so this is basically uh, Glossop had he did have his execution dates set. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting my notes are mixed up now. OK, <laughs> so. Glossop did have um, an execution date set when his federal habeas claims were denied. And that is, that's how it goes. That's how it works. Um, and um, the state, the initial date set was the 29th uh, of January, 2015. Okay. Uh, Glossop did file a petition challenging the uh, lethal injection protocol by the state of Oklahoma using midazolam as the first drug. And the allegation is basically that midazolam is not enough to render a, an inmate insensate during the administration of the next two drugs in the protocol. That's the long and short of it. He filed that awfully late, right? Because his execution date was the 29th and he filed that motion what, on the, the 13th, 13th. Just correct. A couple of weeks. Correct. And and his execution date was set October 27th, 2014. So, yeah, that was pushing it a little close. Um, and it on the 28th of January and a stay a stay of execution was granted by the U.S. Supreme Court when they they granted the writ and agreed to hear the case. Um, so oral argument was set for April 29, 2015. Um, and there had apparently been a federal district court decision, but I, I didn't I, I didn't document the entire history of this because there's a lot and it gets very confusing. Uh, on June 29, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the district court decision and held that the petitioners had failed to establish a likelihood of success on the merits that the use of midazolam violates the Eighth Amendment. The uh, state of Oklahoma issued a new order setting his execution date for the 16th. Uh, also in in October, Glossop had a clemency hearing because he did have that January date. Um, and his uh, request for clemency was denied by the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. Um, if anyone out there has a link to video of the entire hearing, including Glossop's interview, um, I would very much appreciate it. I've looked and looked and looked online and haven't found it. 
um, or if someone just has a link to the video of Glossop's portion where he made his statement and was interviewed, uh, that too, I would appreciate it if you link me up with that because I would like to see that. Um, it was on YouTube at one time, but now it's either buried or has been taken down and I haven't been able to find it. Um, but um, during his portion, a woman by the name of Patricia High apparently asked him 24 cross-exam type questions that put him on the spot, dealing with his post-offense behavior or post-murder behavior. Um, now, interestingly enough, all of that is documented in the state's clemency petition or, or uh, opposition to Glossop's petition. So um, in spite of claims that High had some conflict of interest because she was in that prosecutor's office, there's no evidence she ever was involved in any way, shape, or form in Glossop's prosecutions. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week because the, the part of the complaints having been made by Glossop over the years have been that, you know, that clemency hearing was so unfair because Patricia High cross-examined him. Um, so, uh, again, I've got notes and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to post my notes um, because there, there's a lot of information about the facts in the case. Um, the state post, you know, provided a formal opposition and they laid out the, the evidence against Glossop that he actively concealed and deflected attention from Barry's body and crime scene. He possessed proceeds from the car. He had a strong motive. And I think he had multiple motives. I don't think it was one thing or the other. Um, there was the allegation of embezzlement, uh, which according to William Bender's testimony, and they've never shown any reason why William Bender would have lied about this. Bender had no bones to pick with Glossop. Um, Barry told him that he had given Glossop until he got back from Tulsa to come up with the money, that he had given Glossop a week to get the books straightened out and get the paperwork that was missing found and to Barry Vantrese. And if he didn't do that, he was going to, Barry was going to call the police. There's also the condition of the rooms. 24 rooms in that hotel, motel were uninhabitable because of issues with the heaters, with the plumbing, with the fixtures, with the phones. Um, and there were rooms that were supposed to have been renovated that had not been renovated by Glossop outside of- just been pocketing the money. Exactly. And I, I think that's what happened. I think Barry, I think Barry Ventrice in the, the several months during the fall where he wasn't as attentive and wasn't visiting as much, I think Glossop said, oh, Barry, I'm going to fix up this room. I'm going to take $200 from the receipts for today. And Barry's like, okay, fine. And then Glossop pocketed that $200. Um, I think Glossop was running rooms off the books. Um, I, you know, that his brother was there dealing drugs. Even though people didn't think Glossop was involved, 
I think Glossop was involved. And I think Glossop was probably getting a cut of that as well. But he and Deanna were just spending the money because it was, you know, easy. And when he wanted more money, he just stole more money from somewhere. Yeah. And it was probably that classic case where, as you said, Barry had been, Van Treese had not been very active yeah. and probably had been distracted and Glossop was just doing whatever he yeah. wanted and had a pretty good thing going. And then all of a sudden Van Treese has decided to come back and, you know, get back involved in his motel and yeah it's probably not very happy about that so um so they and, and the, the opposition lays out i mean the evidence connecting glossop and um and like i said miss high's questioning of glossop probably uh came from that opposition more than her uh relationship working relationship with connie smotherman or who was one of the prosecutors in Glossop's case, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, Glossop made some uh, interesting statements as well um, in that January 9th um, interview. He said, I lied because when Snead told me I felt like I was involved in it, I should have done something right then. I didn't want to lose my girlfriend. I didn't want Barry hurt. I didn't want my fingerprints anywhere. Um, those are all things that a person who's not involved in it would not concern themselves with because they weren't involved in it. But, you know, I guess that's just how Glossop's mind works. Probably because he's a manipulator and a con man. Um, that's, that's how his mind works. So clemency was denied. On August 28, 2015, uh, the Supreme Court dismissed a challenge to the use of a That's kind of weird. Sorry. I might have a mistaken date in there. <laughs> um, so I've got notes about the challenge that was filed, and we talked about it a little bit with Amy. Uh, Kingry about the challenge to the Oklahoma lethal injection that has been finally decided in June of this year uh, the U.S. District Court judge uh, rendered his opinion after the trial in February and March um, I'm not going to uh, again I'm going to post my notes but I'm not going to go through everything but basically uh, he found that the claim that the claims that survived motion to dismiss and summary judgment that the uh, petitioners Glossop and the other inmates had failed to prove their claims. Um, he also made some specific findings regarding the execution of John Grant. Um, basically, there are allegations that. Um, the use of midazolam caused John Grant to uh, suffer during his execution. And the judge found that um, based on two anesthetists who were witnesses for the state and who observed John Grant's execution, that uh, that was not true. 
Grant was observed with a rocking boat motion in his abdomen and chest, which is not observed in conscious people or not a movement made by conscious people. Um, that the he experienced airway obstruction likely caused due to the high dosage of the midazolam, that he made no purposeful movements, and that his um, passive loss of gastric contents was likely due to his substantial food in intake during the hours before his execution, and the fact that he lost muscle tone while you know, under the effects of midazolam. And retching and vomiting are potential side effects. And anybody who's had a, uh, an outpatient procedure, what do they tell you? Midnight, the night before your procedure, no food, no beverages, right. no intake of anything, except you can take your medications with water. Exactly. I mean, I, I had a, in June of last year, I had a little procedure and, um, I couldn't eat or drink anything. I went to bed at 11 o'clock just so I wouldn't be tempted, <laughs> hmm. you know, and I took my pills with water that morning. I could have a diet Coke in the morning. When I got up, I went to the hospital because they gave me, you know, they give you a, I think it's Verset is the one that they gave me, okay. but it's kind of, it's similar. It kind of, um, you, you get drowsy, but you don't necessarily lose consciousness. You're kind of aware of what's going on, but you don't feel pain and you don't, you don't, you know, you don't feel the effects of whatever procedure you're undergoing. Um, and that's because it acts on your central nervous system and interferes with pain signals and things like that. Um, so basically he found that the adverse reactions occurred after Grant was insensate and that he, you know, was not, his execution was not quote botched as they call it. Right. So um, that's basically uh, the, the judge's decision um, and it's important to note that uh, in spite of what the defense bar will tell you, there's never been a finding by the U.S. Supreme Court that any execution is cruel and unusual. I know Stephen Breyer tried to push that narrative. Um, prior to him, there was Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall, who also any death penalty appellate denial by the U.S. Supreme Court resulted in Memorandum opinions similar to Justice Sotomayor's opinion in Rodney Reed versus Texas. Um, their opinion, which carries absolutely no legal weight whatsoever. Um, and recently with the execution dates, um, they're now talking about Justice Breyer's dissent in uh, Glossop versus Gross. On the, on the court of public opinion and the media. So um, that was basically pain, plain, the conclusion 
end of it all was the plaintiffs have fallen well short of clearing the bar set by the Supreme Court. Consequently, the Eighth Amendment does not stand in the way of Oklahoma's protocol. So that resulted in new execution dates uh, being set in July of this year. But let's go back to 2015 and the claims of innocence of poor downtrodden Richard Glossop begin in the court of public opinion with a press release on September 11, 2015. Well, they actually began, I didn't have this on my thing. They actually began in July of 2015 with a press conference by Don Knight that he is now coming in and he is going to prove Richard Glossop is innocent because God damn it, Richard Glossop is innocent. He's going to prove it. And he's not going to criticize the defense attorneys. Well, that'll change. Um, but that's, that is really how it begins. He's seeking information now. Um, I would like to know where these people were in 1997. Exactly. When the case was initially investigated. Or in 1998, when Richard Glossop was initially tried. Or in 2004, during Richard Glossop's second trial. Because these people apparently had very important information that the jury should have known about. But right. I digress. They're never, yeah, they never think, they never, it's just <laughs> like the, um, just like who was the lady in the, uh, Adnan, the, the Adnan Syed case who had all this critical exonerating evidence and didn't Asia McLean. For, yeah, for 15 years. Yeah. Um, Asia McLean. Yep. So, um, the press release on September 11th, scheduling a, a press conference on September 14th, 2015. Um, basically, the points made in this press release were uh, Dr. Richard Leo, who believes that uh, you can't rely on Justin Sneed's statements because Sneed was pressured to implicate Glossop by police. He was fed details by police. He adopted the detective stories that Glossop was mastermind. Not that he knew anything about the crime. You know what I mean? Right. Um, that they had new evidence that proves Sneed's statement was coerced, which is Richard Leo's opinion. Um that investigators presumed Glossop's guilt and sought to pressure and persuade Sneed to implicate him. That investigators lied to Sneed, saying multiple witnesses implicated when only Glossop brought his name up. Um, well, but they didn't lie to him about Glossop bringing his name up. <laughs> they didn't lie when they said Glossop's putting this all on you. That wasn't a lie. Um, but again, and this is all, this is all from richard leo and in the defense's eyes even though they they know they just know because of richard glossop's inconsistent statements about barry and and claiming that he saw barry after barry's been dead for three hours and then say no 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 i didn't say that oh wait i didn't mean that oh wait i got confused um when they know he had something to do with it and he tells them Sneed said he did it, that they still should have been canvassing the motel and talking to everybody that was at the motel and trying to find somebody else who killed Barry Ventries. Because 
this is the weird thing about the story changing. Sometimes it almost seems like they're trying to prove Sneed didn't do it. Um, and then they go on and, and since they, you know, they've tried to say, well, you can't rely on what Sneed said because the cops made him say it. Now they go to Sneed's character um, and falsely claim that the crimes he was convicted of involve moral turpitude, which is not true. Um, they say Sneed was addicted to methamphetamine, that he broke into cars and rooms at the motel to support his habit. Um, they have a drug dealer named Richard Barrett who says Sneed used often and bought stolen, brought stolen goods to pay for drugs sold to him by Gloss's brother, Bobby. Uh, Barrett's affidavit says Glossop, Bobby Glossop dealt drugs out of room 102 and Sneed was in there often. Uh, Barrett said he only saw Glossop when he came to room 102 to tell them to quiet down. If he was trying to clean up the motel and keep the drug dealers and the prostitutes out, he should have been at room 102 telling him to get the fuck out. Um, Barrett saw, said he saw no evidence of Glossop's alleged control over Sneed. Uh, but he never said he saw Steed and Glossop together. Uh, his observations of Sneed's behavior say Sneed was addicted and tweaking all the time to methamphetamine. Um, but he wasn't at the motel on 1797. And then they also brought in some hearsay from Sneed's mother or grandmother that Sneed was addicted to methamphetamine. Um, they talk about exonerations in other states which aren't relevant and they really aren't relevant to Glossop's case because as a mastermind who didn't actually commit the murder and who consciously did not leave any evidence behind at the crime scene when he was at the crime scene um, there's not going to be any physical evidence either tying him to the murder or any testing of physical evidence that's going to exonerate him because there was never ever any evidence that the state said linked him to the murder, at least physically. Um, and none of them are relevant to Glossop's case, because I think most of them were almost like DNA exonerations, which isn't going to happen in Glossop's case. They also criticized the testimony of the medical examiner who rendered an opinion about Barry Vantrese's time of death and cause of death. And this was based on jurors who spoke to Fox 25 and said that they felt that they were misled by the ME testimony regarding the time of death. Not a legal, legitimate source of evidence. And, and it's unclear whether the jurors were from the first trial or the second trial that Fox 25 talked to because even though Joe Berlinger didn't realize this when he made the little documentary killing Richard Glossop, everything that happened at his first trial is irrelevant because his conviction is not based on anything that happened at that trial because that trial was reversed, but he sure spent a hell of a lot of time in killing Richard Glossop talking about that first trial. Um, then there was a press conference, of course, again, more bluster from Don Knight, 
uh, going over all this new evidence about Sneed's drug habits and drug addiction and new witnesses that claim Sneed made statements to them that contradict his trial testimony about his drug addiction uh, and holding the uncorroborated hearsay statements out as credible and reliable because why else would these people come forward? That's his basic reasoning. Well, I don't know. They have a bone to pick with Justin Sneed. They don't like him. They're bored. And giving an affidavit, even though it's supposed to be under oath, uh, although a lot of times these affidavits are not signed, they're not before notaries, um, they're not administered under oath, they're under, quote, penalty of perjury. Um, it's, it's not a, quite a, you know, exactly a challenge to get people to do this, but then they won't come into court and testify because that's when they're sworn and they're definitely under penalty of perjury if they lie. So, um, and again, that's the biggest flaw with these court of public opinion cases is that the side that claims the person who's been convicted is innocent is basically doing that presuming that everything that they're saying has to be true yeah exactly yeah everything that everything that witnesses say for the defense is absolutely 100 reliable but then those say you know every witness for the prosecution is unreliable right and uh, and, and sneed doesn't really have a motive right i mean yes he's he's a messed up 19 year old i think what he did he dropped out of school in eighth grade yeah. he's He's so not Glossop. exactly a Boy Scout, you know, but right. he doesn't have a motive for murder and he's not he doesn't really have a history of violence. No, correct? he uh, he very he did not have a history of violence. Um, his crimes were he called in a bomb threat. And that may be why he was thrown out of school. Um, but he has said that that was because a girlfriend convinced him to do it. He broke into a school and stole some computer equipment and then he and his friends bragged about it and got caught um, and then he was writing bad checks in Texas which is probably why he joined a roofing crew that was going to Oklahoma right and more likely than not he was he was trying to make money to pay back the checks and pay uh, the fines or whatever and get himself out of trouble um but he ended up at the motel and he and his stepbrother who are probably put together don't have a full brain between them they're probably working on about i don't know maybe half a brain a quarter each um, so they're not, yeah, they're not the best decision makers, but he didn't have any, doesn't have a history of violence. any history of violence. Glossop reported no incidents where Justin's threatens Vantrese, no incidents where Justin was violent toward anybody. Um, no instances where Justin Sneed had, I mean, not even the drug use. He claimed Justin and his brother were drug dealers, but 
he didn't really say that they were drug users or drug addicts or, and he didn't say anything about, he kind of, a, he, well, he implied that Justin Steed may have stolen money from one motel guest, but you know, you, if you're in a, a strange city with nobody that, you know, and you don't have any money and you're dependent on people for food and cigarettes, et cetera, you might get desperate enough one day to steal money from somebody if it, if you think it's easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, little petty, little yeah. petty theft here and there, which not excusing it, but that's a big jump from that to, um, but murder. you know, going into the room and, and I think basically, I think what happened is Glossop feared being thrown out. Glossop feared being reported to police and, um, Glossop wanted to avoid those consequences. He also, I think, told Justin, if I'm out of here, you're out of here. Because according to Justin Sneed's interview, the deal with, that Sneed had for his room at the motel was between him and Glossop. Right. Um, now, I think it was wrong for Barry Van Treese to have people working for his motel in exchange for rooms. Um, they should have also earned something for their for their work. However, that's a bad business decision on his part and was probably done because he didn't want to worry about having to pay taxes. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so he was, uh, you know, he was a uh, he was running a, a kind of a, a dirtbag motel and probably you know didn't you know took probably in some way did take advantage of some people but again that doesn't mean he has a right to be and I, you know I, I and i would i would wonder i would be get, given the some of the things that have come out in the recent things i would wonder if maybe glossop wanted a handyman but van Treese wouldn't permit him to hire one so this was his idea comp him the room and tell Vantrees we're only comping him the room you don't have to deal with taxes and payroll and all that and Vantrees is like okay it's one room out of my pocket but it's not taxes and payroll and having to having to do all the accounting work and paperwork so you know maybe that was Glossop's way of having a maintenance guy exactly since Vantrese wouldn't let him hire somebody but um david prater uh the oklahoma county da at the time was a, this this the other thing with don knight um he doesn't have a lot of brains but he's got some massive fucking balls <laughs> because he holds this press conference in the state capitol, in the rotunda. And the funny thing is, is that nobody had any respect for it because you hear doors slamming, you hear bells going off. I mean, it's not a really well put together professional press conference. Right. It's like, I'm doing this for the most attention I can get. Uh, so somebody, a, a reporter, intrepid reporter, finds David Prater in the, you know, in the rotunda observing this shit show 
and goes up to him and says, what do you think? And David Prater, never one to mince words, you got to admire his bluntness, says it's a bullshit PR campaign. (laughs) And he was, he actually seemed quite um, perturbed about the whole thing. Well, they go back to Knight, of course, and they say, well, he says it's just a bullshit PR campaign. And Knight, because like I said, no brains, but big balls. He says, if it was a PR campaign, why would I bring affidavits? Because <laughs> you're releasing them to the press and you're telling your story in the press and you're hoping your the press will distribute your story so that only your they side gets told. And then everybody believes Richard Glossop is innocent. Gee, you didn't figure that one out, huh? <laughs> so <laughs> after this, um, after this show, they do get around to actually filing a legal document with the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals on September 15, 2015. Now, oddly enough, while a lot of the claims mentioned at the press conference do make it into the into the uh, successive writ application. Some of them don't. Um, and uh, that tells you the ones that don't are the ones that they don't really have that much um, confidence in. But they they make good sound bites. So um, Mark Henriksen and Kathleen Lord are the ones who actually filed the application. Don Knight did not seek admission in Oklahoma or sign any of the pleadings. Uh, I think he later sought admission and was granted admission. Um, But at the time of filing, he wasn't even his, his fingerprints are not even on this document. So Their claims alleged are an Eighth Amendment violation. In other words, it's wrong to execute Glossop just on the word of Justice Need, even though that's never been the basis for Glossop's execution. Um, Ineffective assistance of counsel, sufficiency of the evidence, and ineffective assistance of counsel regarding the ME's testimony uh, about time of death misleading the jury. So in Proposition 1, they allege they have newly discovered evidence of actual innocence about Sneed's testimony addressing sufficiency of the evidence and death sentence on Sneed's word. They also claim to have new evidence that Sneed's interrogation was coercive, that Sneed bragged about lying to implicate Glossop, and that Sneed was a drug addict and thief. The witnesses... Um, that they cite in this writ are a guy by the name of Michael Scott, who was at Joseph Harp with Sneed in 2006. He claims Sneed bragged about setting Glossop up and that Sneed seemed happy and proud of himself for doing it. A woman by the name of, or someone named Orion Justine Sneed sent a letter to the parole board Uh, She said she was Sneed's daughter. She said Sneed told her that he was afraid of losing his deal. And he told her he lied about Glossop to avoid the death penalty. 
Uh, Sneed's mother says he wrote to her and implied that powerful, important, and people were involved, like police officers, uh, Richard Allen Barrett, who was a partner of Bobby Glossop's, who claimed Sneed uh, was Sneed's drug dealer and said he observed Glossop with Bobby, who dealt, or Sneed with Bobby, who dealt out of room 102 uh, and paid for his drugs with stolen goods. Um, said Sneed stole from occupied rooms and cars in the parking lot and that he was addicted to meth and always tweaking. Uh, Richard Leo, that Sneed's confession was false based on interrogation tactics employed by investigators. And then a guy by the name of Dr. Stewart, who said Sneed's behavior described by Barrett was consistent with that of a violent meth addict. And, and the, pe the people like Sneed's mother, you know, she says that, but does she ever, has she ever produced the letter? I mean, has she ever said, here's no. a letter in his handwriting no. that says he did it? No. And, and later uh, we will go on that, that mama, and and they alternately they seem to the woman they're talking to sometimes they say it's his mother and sometimes they say she's his grandmother so i don't think they know who they're talking to but yeah she goes on later to say some make some statements that are not helpful um and then that Snee, he also says that Snead was treating with lith, treated with lithium in jail which is consistent with meth addiction um Interestingly enough, I mean, Dr. Stewart bases his diagnosis on Barrett's description in an affidavit made 18 years after the fact. Not based on his observations or treatment of Sneed. But I digress. <laughs> Proposition two uh, is ineffective assistance to counsel because trial counsel failed to, failed to attack Sneed's credibility by showing the interrogation methods presented a risk of false confession and by presenting evidence that Sneed's MO was to break into cars and rooms to support his drug habit. Because basically what they want to claim is that Sneed did this all by himself. He didn't do it for Richard Glossop. He didn't do it because Glossop asked him to. He was breaking in to steal money from, from Vantrees and he got caught and he beat Vantrees to death. And Glossop was not involved. Uh, but they never addressed Glossop's failure to tell police about Sneed's confession. I don't know, at five o'clock in the morning when Sneed made it to him. When they're just, I mean, and there doesn't seem to be a reason. There's not a strong motive for him to implicate gloss up you know for no reason mm -hmm. you know yeah. and similarly there's really no reason you know you do hear a lot of these times well the cops want to you know just solve the case they want to frame somebody but they already had a suspect so right. exactly. there's not a real strong reason for them to want to go say yeah let's let's throw this Richard Glossop under the bus, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it's not really helping them solve their case or close the case. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then their, their third proposition is kind of confusing. I think this one was just like a spaghetti um, or shotgun approach. 
Um, first of all, they, they claim there was insufficient evidence, but then it appears that they're using the evidence from the first trial, not the second trial. And one of the boldest claims is that the retrial in 2004 violated double jeopardy because Glossop's conviction was reversed from his first trial and he had alleged the evidence was insufficient. They argued Glossop was at most an accessory because Sneed's statement was not corroborated. They argued that uh, if Glossop was really a thief, he could have fled with the $3,600 in receipts, uh, which is one of the most ridiculous arguments I've ever heard about this case. He is, he doesn't want to turn off the tap and go on the run. And that's what would have happened if he'd fled with 10 days worth of receipts one day. He would be on the run because that would be reported to police. That would be highly bad. But what he wanted was he wanted a tap where he could get, if he he wanted $200, he could get $200. Right. And he could say he was going to fix up a room or he did fix up a room or I think he could con. And I think that's the thing that people don't, don't get with Glossop. He's a manipulator. I mean, when you look at the, or listen to, or even reading the transcripts of his two interviews, you can see he's trying to work the cops. He's trying to manipulate the cops. Um, and there are a couple of times they ask him direct questions and he doesn't say yes or no. He starts into the spiel that has nothing to do with what they just asked him. Like saying, you know, Wes and Justin are skinheads and they follow some guy who's like a big Nazi and they're drug dealers. You know, he's trying, he's trying to throw other people under the bus so that it doesn't run over him. Um, but so that's, you know, he didn't want to, to take a lot of money and go on the run and be subject to criminal charges. He wanted to steal money and, and continue stealing money for as long as it would, as the tap would run. And then he would move on. And that's probably what happened with the Grand Continental. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Right. Um, they said Glossop didn't need robbery with Sneed to get motel money, but, you know, he wanted Barry dead. And he probably wanted Barry dead for multiple reasons, including that he had gotten caught and he was going to get in trouble. He was going to get caught for not fixing up the rooms that he said he fixed up. And he's going to have to explain where that money went. Um, he had records that he apparently had been hiding because that's one way of keeping people from figuring out just how much money you might have stolen from them. Um, so he and he was that was all coming to a head. Um. And yeah, the house of cards was about to get knocked over. Yeah. And personally, I think what happened, I think Barry Ventries got to the motel. He had a little talk with Glossop. He gave him his ultimatums. He left to leave for, to go to Tulsa. And I think it was while he was driving to Tulsa that he started thinking about Glossop taking and stealing from him. And one of the statements I read in later things was that Glossop, that Barry Ventries would tell 
employees, when you steal from me, you're stealing money out of my baby's mouth. And so I think on the drive to Tulsa, that's what got him angry. And so by the time he gets to Tulsa, now he's angry. And that's what leads him to vent to Bender. And thank God he did. Because if he hadn't, we probably never would have known these things. So, um, but yeah, he, he wasn't wanting to rob Barry Ventries. He wanted Barry Ventries dead. And that's why he sent Justice Need to the room with a baseball bat. Right. And well, said, and kill him now. Yeah. And he talks about, right, his not wanting to lose his girlfriend. And I'm sure that if, you know, all of a sudden he's unemployed with no money and as, you know, Correct. or may have gotten arrested, that's probably not going to help their relationship. Correct. And that's another thing, too. And, and this is Glossop had promised her by the time she was 25, she'd have a Camaro, new boobs and a baby. She was 23. So he was coming up on two years that he needed to provide her with a new car, boobs, and a baby. Uh, they claim there's no proof of embezzlement and new evidence refutes the state's claims about motive that Sneed gave inconsistent statements to police at uh, to police and at the first and second trials. And re-argues the corroboration found by the Court of Criminal Appeals in its direct appeal after Glossop's second trial, claiming that it's insufficient because it does not directly connect Glossop to the crime. Proposition four was uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, of trial counsel, uh, who failed to challenge the misleading testimony from the ME regarding time of death and cause of death. And that new evidence showed the Emmy's testimony was scientifically false. Uh, that's a popular, a popular uh, tactic with post-conviction uh, defense bar is to claim because you find three medical examiners who disagree with the original trial med medical examiner's opinions that the testimony was scientifically false. We've seen it in Rodney Reed. We've seen it in uh, probably other cases as well as Glossop. Um, where, but it really, when you get down to it, when there's a hearing and those medical examiners testify, it doesn't become so much proof of scientific falsity of the original testimony, but more simply opinions of experts that differ right and that well, and happens that's what, all the time yeah well and that's what's frustrating right as a lay person is you just you do see you know you can have five experts that can give you six different opinions on something that you would think ought not to be that country you know seems like the same emmys could get the same answer but like you said in all yeah. these cases they could always find some eme to give them the answer that they want. Right. And well, and, and what happens like with um, what usually happens in the post-conviction realm is the Emmys take a single factor or two factors and they focus on those two factors and they ignore everything else. Right. And we saw it in Ronnie Reed with doctors, um, was it Davis and Baker? who ignored 
or well, Baker ignored the way Stacy was dressed when her body was found, which indicated she was on her way to work. Not that she was in her apartment at nine o'clock the night before. Right. Um, and we also saw Baden, Spitz, um, Riddick, all these, all these MEs had a different time frame of their new time of death. So even they did not, the same factors, they didn't agree. Um, and a lot of times you'll see that the post-conviction attorneys will say they can pinpoint an exact time or they'll misrepresent the trial testimony as pinpointing an exact time when in reality, the trial testimony was, I can't pinpoint an exact time, but this is my range. And I think that's what was done. That's what Knight is doing here. He's claiming Choi gave an exact time of death. And yet she didn't. And uh, he's also claiming she that her cause of death, um, they disagreed with her cause of death, which I think was blood loss. Because he had internal bleeding in the, in the head. And I think he had some uh, external blood loss as well uh but you know that's it's a it it, it's a i guess a best guess situation you know medical medical medicine isn't a science it's a it's an art that employs some science but it's not and science is not the hard and fast answers that people portray it to be no sometimes so um the witnesses for supporting proposition four are dr weigrin dr plunkett dr Baden, and a woman by the name of laura shile she uh gave an affidavit criticizing non-existent autopsy protocols she was not a medical examiner. She's not a doctor. She's not a medical doctor. She was brought in to run a DNA lab or set up and run a DNA lab. So I don't really think she's exactly not really an expert. qualified to say what should be set up as far as protocols for autopsy. Right. Given that she's not a medical examiner. But that's just my opinion. Uh, they also filed a motion for discovery alleging that they needed uh, discovery to establish Sneed's bragging about setting Glossop up and that is actually innocent. Uh, they had attempted to interview three other currently incarcerated inmates who were afraid to confirm Sneed's statements or confirm Scott's statements about Sneed. They were requesting names of inmates released from Sneed's pod and DOC's help to locate and interview those witnesses. Uh, they needed Sneed's jail medical records to document his medical con condition at Tommy Fence and interrogation. They believe police had confiscated drug paraphernalia from Sneed's room. They needed actual polygraph documents for polygraph uh, that was given to Richard Glossop and was discussed at his clemency hearing because they had an expert who was going to say whether that polygraph was... Uh, legitimate or not 
They needed additional investigation of the time of death evidence. They needed need psychiatric treatment records, which were in a sealed federal court file that Glossop had sealed. Um, need, they needed the entire DA investigator's file for Glossop prosecution and the entire DA file for his prosecution. They wanted supplementation of the court record with the materials that they'd filed in support of their writ. And they argued that the outcome of Glossop's trial would have been different with all this new evidence. That's kind of the, they, those are the grounds they have to set out. Um, they needed, they had a, wanted a motion for, they filed a motion for evidentiary hearing and they identified the following witnesses. Hounts, who was a PhD, Bodden, Weigrin, Plunkett, Shile, Barrett, Sneed, and Scott. They also sought a stay of Glossop's uh, September 16th execution date. Um, Kathleen Lord, one of the attorneys, Henriksen was a local attorney. Kathleen Lord was a, a Colorado attorney. She was granted permission to appear pro hoc vice on behalf of Glossop by the court on the 15th. The state filed a response and basically Sorry. Um, they um, disagreed with the claim that Glossop was in, innocent. They argued he admitted on January 9th, 1997, that he concealed the murder. They pointed out he gave three stories about when he last saw Barry to Tim Brown, that he lied about Barry to Hooper, Everhart, and Donna Ventrice, that he lied about Room 102 that he said Barry stayed in room 108, that he lied about the broken window in room 102, that he appeared to search rooms and grounds after Sneed told him Barry was dead, that he provided false leads about the second floor tenants who left without checking out, that he lied to police on the 8th when questioned after Barry's body was found, that he possessed proceeds from the murder. Uh, he had $1,757 with no legitimate source that he had told Sneed where to find the money under the car seat that would testify they live paycheck to paycheck. Um, because they had, a, they had an affidavit from Deanna Wood as well. And that may have been part of a later application. Yeah, that was successive, Never mind. <laughs> um, they cited as motive that Barry planned to confront Glossom about the shortages that he planned to audit the books and do a room-to-room -room inspection of the motel, that there were missing registra registration cards, that the weekend receipts were missing, which is cash money, um, that Glossop was allowing people to stay in rooms off the books. And that meant that he was falsifying daily reports, that Barry had told Bender he was going to call the police if Glossop, Glossop didn't produce money and records. The deplore They cited the deplorable condition of the motel with only 24 rooms inhab inhabitable um that 12 rooms had no working heat and i think this motel had i think we said 40 rooms last week i think that's that sounds right i think that's right um so that you know 24 out of 40 that's 16 rooms that you couldn't run out because they had no working heat that they had inoperable keys, that plumbing fixtures were broken and filthy, and that the phone systems were broken. They also cited his control over Sneed and said 
Sneed did not know Barry and Sneed had met Barry only three times. Uh, and then they also cited the intent to flee. Um, they argued that the Eighth Amendment claim was procedurally barred because the new evidence was not new, um, that Sneed's interrogation could have been investigated and presented before the first trial, the second trial, direct appeal, or initial post-conviction application, that Leo was citing studies of interrogation techniques that have been around or have been researched and documented since at least 1998. And you and I know Leo's partner, Offshay, testified in 1994 on behalf of Jesse Miss Kelly regarding interrogation techniques and opining that right. Jesse Miss Kelly's confession was false. So it even goes back longer than that. Um, Glossop failed to provide a full statement of Sneed that he uh, Sneed was adequately adequately cross-examined at trial on the evolution of his statement from his denial to his admission of guilt and withholding of information. And another thing that's interesting with these post-conviction claims, apparently the defense bar for post-conviction thinks that when you're brought in to a police station and questioned that you tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth from the beginning, even when you're being accused of having committed a crime. And in the real world, that ain't way things work. And there are studies that show that people will try to distance themselves from a crime. They will right. not say all the facts. They will not admit to doing things that they think are going to cause them um, difficulties. For example, someone who kills a child will not admit to sexually abusing that child. Even if they do eventually admit to killing him or her. So for Justin C. say, no, no, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, that's exactly what Richard Glossop did. He said I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, you're right. Like, there's been so many of these where you've seen in history a lot of these types where, like, exactly as you said, they they will start out thinking, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell 10%. That'll check the box. They'll buy it. And then I'm no longer a suspect as long as I tell them something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, then, sometimes, you know, and sometimes these criminals are stupid because they will they will say something thinking I can't get in trouble for it. Right. You know, but well, you said that back in reality, like Jesse Miss Kelly, you know, he started out saying, you know, telling him a little bit and then a little bit, and you know, and then finally over time, he finally gave the full confession, but he certainly didn't say everything day one or the, so, at the first. Um, the state went on to argue that uh, Leo's statement doesn't support Glossop's innocence or that no reasonable fact finder would have convicted Glossop or sentenced him to death because Leo's statement is his opinion about Steve's interrogation and you know that might have resulted in Sneed's full interrogation being played for the jury and there's a lot of information in that interrogation that actually does more harm to Glossop than good so you know to say that they that the defense attorney should have played Sneed's interrogation is showing you didn't watch that whole interrogation because 
you know, there's a lot of, a lot of information there. It's better just to go with his testimony and what's he's, what he's asked and answered than to show that whole interrogation. Cause I was watching part two. Right. And he's talking about how Glossop told him to move the car and where to find the money. And then he thought he was going to get all the money, but Glossop said, no, I want half. So um, they pointed out the flaws with Scott's affidavit, including that it was undated and unsworn. Scott admits to learning about Glossop's case on the Dr. Phil show. They uh, again point out that the statement wasn't notarized because the notary was not pleasant when he signed, which if you're going to have somebody sign an affidavit, you have a notary present. And if that means bringing that notary to the prison, well, then that's what you do. Uh, that Scott says it was common knowledge that Sneed sold Glossop up the river in 2006. The evidence was discoverable in 2006, that it relied on inadmissible hearsay that is inherently suspect when offered so close to an execution date. That's uh, basically the uh, our Oklahoma court opinions have ruled it thus. And then a footnote uh, in their brief that said Sneed denied recanting his trial testimony and notes that Glossop's advocates had visited Sneed at around the time this affidavit was being put together. Um, they also cite Barrett's information could have been discovered prior to the first trial, second trial, direct appeal, or initial post-conviction application. That Barrett was listed as a potential witness prior to the first trial and was incorporated in a witness list prior to the second trial. That Barrett's affidavit discusses unlawful actions with Bobby Glossop and Sneed. That Barrett claims Sneed injected drugs, but Sneed testified at trial that he snorted them. Sneed's drug use was known at trial. They also pointed out Barrett's inconsistency, that he doesn't describe a time when Glossop and Sneed were together, yet he says Glossop had no control over Sneed. Um, and points out that he couldn't know whether Glossop controlled Sneed or not if he never saw them together. Uh, they also cited uh, flaws in Stewart's opinion, including that records document that Sneed was not prescribed lithium until March of 1997 after having a tooth pulled. And again, offered only speculation about Sneed's drug use because that was all based on Barrett's affidavit. And Barrett could have been talking about somebody that wasn't even Justin Sneed because he didn't give a statement until like 2014 or 2015. Um, then they made a lot of uh, legal arguments about the um, ineffective assistance uh, the, in claim two or proposition two. Basically, it was procedurally barred because the facts were available at the time of the prior post-conviction application. Um, that the uh, also the allegations about Sneed's credibility were an attempt to re-argue prior claims, that the claim was barred by res judicata, and that Proposition 4 was also not new evidence because it was evidence offered to impeach or discredit an expert testimony at trial. Um, they argued the double jeopardy uh, claim, which was basically also procedurally barred because it wasn't raised. It hadn't been properly raised in this petition. It was uh, waived because it wasn't raised in the first post-conviction application. 
it was foreclosed by statute and it failed on the merits because there was no newly discovered evidence in support uh attack reliability of evidence at the first trial cited no authority and made no meaningful argument in support just kind of was like a lot of conclusory allegations um that glossop's custody was a result of his second trial not his first trial that uh race judicata barred the issue because it was raised on direct appeal um and that the first conviction was reversed based on ineffective assistance of counsel and the claims regarding sufficiency of the evidence were not addressed in light of the reversal on inefficient ineffective assistance uh, also that Glossop took no action via writ of prohibition prior to the second trial or on direct appeal when the merits of his sufficiency claims were not addressed on that first direct appeal. So um, also that it his conviction was not ultimately reversed as a result of insufficiency of the evidence, so it doesn't apply. Um, they also said it was unreasonable delay because the claim could have been brought more than 10 years ago. Um, they also argued that the discovery and evidentiary hearing requests were a fishing expedition and uh, that they sought documents that Glossop had, including Sneed's evaluation and his polygraph testimony, the testimony about polygraph from April of, 20, of 1997, um, that the applications, allegations were meritless and that they were trying to retry the case on collateral review. A supplemental application was filed. It continued because they continued to receive new evidence. They had another guy in jail with Sneed during the summer of 1997, October 1997, who claimed Sneed never mentioned Glossop, was addicted to meth, used meth in jail with Sneed. They uh, also had obtained Baden and a second Dr. T's uh, affidavits who disagreed with Dr. Choi and agreed with Dr. Weigrun. And they had a report from uh, Mr. Hounce on Glossop's polygraph. Uh, then again, in a demonstration of lack of brains, but big balls, Don Knight filed a reply to the state's response. Um, they said that uh, Glossop's execution was based on the lying words of a confessed murderer that's usually what happens when, and in murder for hire, that's what you're going to have. The majority of your evidence is going to come from the person who committed the murder. Because the person who arranged the murder didn't have the balls to commit it themselves. So they didn't leave behind evidence. And there's not going to be a lot of documentary proof unless they pass notes to one another about the murder. Um, now, like, you know, Charles Thompson in Texas he was caught on a murder for hire because he drew a map to the supposed hitman to help him find the victim. And I think it was on documents that had his name on them. So he couldn't say they weren't his. But, you know, you're very rarely in a murder for hire case going to have hard, physical, tangible evidence against the person who arranged the murder. They also claim to have new witnesses, um, Lombardi, Joseph Tapley, Michael Bodden, Shaku Tease. Uh, again, this, they're bringing these people up in their reply. 
Um, and this is the, you know, the, the thing that, that shows the big balls, the lack of brains. Much of the evidence relied on by the state in its response is inadmissible under the rules of evidence, unreliable, and contradicted by Glossop's newly discovered evidence. Hearsay from Justin Sneed, from people in prison with him. You think that's admissible? They're really, really? fighting the court of a public really? opinion, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, they also uh, complained that uh, the DA had refused to cooperate with Glossop's expert, Dr. Peter Speth, who wanted to obtain slides and photos from the ME's office. And I think really the slides and photos of the ME's office, the DA has no access to them. And apparently the, the ME's office was not uh, either could not provide them or did not want to provide them. I don't know. And that may be something that they needed to ask for a court order to get. So again, but it makes it look like they're they yeah. something they need is not being provided by the DA, exactly. even though the DA has no charge over that evidence. Right. Or control over the evidence. So there's also a notice of state's efforts to oppose innocence witnesses, which was definitely solely for the court of public opinion. They complained that apparently um, the DA's office wanted to talk to Scott, Michael Scott, uh, who had by that time been released from jail or prison, and he refused to talk to them. Um, which was not a wise thing to do when he was on supervised release from a charge of DUI and possession in Rogers County. So um, they basically, he and he'd also, it, one of the problems for Michael Scott was he was on supervised DA's release from this DUI and possession charge that he pled guilty to he had not completed his community service and he was be behind on his fines because of an alleged medical condition or a medical treatment or injury that he'd sustained that had prevented him from working. So when you're on supervised release like that and you don't keep up with your fines and you don't keep up with your community service yeah the da is going to arrest you right can arrest you can revoke your super you know your supervision your supervised release and whatever term you agreed to plead guilty to whatever prison term is attached to that plea you could go to prison you go back to prison um so he was arrested and brought into the uh brought in by claremore officers and questioned by Prater and said he felt intimidated, coerced, and in danger. Uh, and then he was eventually released on 500 bond, $500 bond. So what could have happened didn't ultimately happen. And then Joseph Tapley had refused to talk to Prater and a warrant had been issued for his arrest. Well, they have a right to talk to your witnesses, dude. Especially, um, what was it, Tapley, who said he did meth with Justin Sneed in prison. And that when they were talking, 
Justin Sneed was high. So, you know, that's something I think the DA would probably want to talk to them about. Um, so uh, that was, you know, the indignance. And then on the 23rd of September, Mark Olive and Don Knight uh, filed motions for permission to appear pro Havice. The state filed a response to the supplemental application on the 24th. Um, again, it, they argued that the evidence being presented was not truly new. They had uh, that Glossop's counsel had failed to show that Tapley could not have been discovered sooner. That Sneed not mention, mentioning Glossop's name could have been discovered before the first trial. Um, that Sneed never told Tapley he acted alone. That Tapley's affidavit was not clear and convincing. That his record of grand, grand larceny, concealing stolen property, and falsely impersonating another um, were all crimes that impacted his credibility. Uh, also, in, initially as well, I forgot to, to mention this, a media source was able to get a conf, uh, get records from ODC, which Glossop's attorney claims are confidential, um, but which are not necessarily confidential, uh, was able to get ODC records of Scott and basically posted an article on the 19th of September that questioned Scott's credibility. And they complained about that, complaining that the DA had fed the article and the journalist in question refused to reveal his source. So um, they got a chance to allege a big conspiracy. Um, they also claimed that um, Glossop presented false statements in the application regarding Bobby Glossop's gun. Uh, I think Barrett described it as silver and it was actually black. Um, and Hounts uh, filed his report 74 days after receipt. Even if it had been filed with the initial application, it was 69 days after receipt. Um, so that was, you have 60 days to present new evidence after you receive it. And uh, they argued that Glossop had not been reasonably diligent in obtaining information about his polygraph, which was testified to it as 1997 preliminary hearing. And their argument with the polygraph is, unless we can see the charts and the questions and the reports, then we don't know if the polygraph was even legitimate. So you can't say Glossop failed a polygraph if you can't prove that a polygraph ever happened. Even though Glossop says he took a polygraph and he was told he failed. But, you know, that's one of those things. It's like if, if you can't pre present a report, it didn't happen, which is ridiculous. Um, on the 24th, an order allowing Kathleen Lord, Mark Olive, and Don Knight to appear for Hot Viche was entered. Um, they withdrew, they filed a notice withdrawing footnote five, which I think was to do with the gun after it was pointed out that it was, it was the, um, 
Barrett claimed his silver gun when in fact Glossop's gun was black. black yeah. Um uh, but you know that and that's interesting too because sometimes a lot of times as we saw with um Banka, sometimes they'll double down and say, No, it was silver. But they at least had the nerve to admit that they were wrong there. Um, on the 28th, there was an order filed by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, which denied relief, denied discovery and the hearing, and denied stay. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason, that order was misscanned. And so you cannot really get a good copy to see exactly what grounds were and what the dissents because there were there were i think two judges who disagreed uh but it was misscanned and some of the some of the early pleadings are also kind of misscanned which makes it difficult to read um their mandate also issued the same day Glossop's attorneys on the 28th filed a reply to the state's response to the supplemental application, even though the entire thing had been denied, arguing that the state sought execution based on the words of someone who went incredible, that Sneed was a proven liar, a drug abuser, a thief. He had a criminal record that involved crimes of deceit, which is false. Um, they argued that he had given an interview to the frontier with even more inconsistent statements they provided a document put together they called Sneed's Eight Stories, and they sought to vacate Glossop's September 30th execution date. They also filed a request for rehearing, uh, alleging that important questions had not been considered by the court and that they should reconsider in light of Glossop's reply to the state's response to the supplemental act uh, successes supplement to successive application. Again, they argued Sneed lacked credibility, that he lied to the frontier, that his eight stories uh, were compelling, and that uh, the state had mistreated Glossop's witnesses. The state argued in a motion to strike that requests for rehearing are not allowed post-conviction, and on the 29th of September, the request for rehearing was denied. And again, after all of this, Snead has never changed his story. He's always maintained Glossop. No, and in, him do in, it. in his statements to the frontier, he uh, basically, you know, stuck with his story at trial that Glossop wanted Van Trees dead and got him to kill him. Um, there, a lot of times people may give interviews later that have discrepancies but what you really have to look at is whether the discrepancy in what they say is material or not for example if the if he says he was wearing a black shirt the night of the murder and the shirt that was recovered was a white shirt that's not a mere material discrepancy. Right. He just believes now that the, the shirt was white, was black instead of white. Um, so that's, you know, and if he, if he, 
if he now believes that there was some exchange between him and Van Trees, even though there never was, or he never mentioned it, you know, again, so, and sometimes it's funny because trial testimony is based on the questions being asked by the prosecutor and or defense attorneys. So something that you didn't mention to police may be because it wasn't a question that they even asked you. Right. And that is, you know, that's true. Um, and the same applies in post-conviction. So um, 2020, uh, they go back to the court of public opinion, even though apparently during 2017 and 2019, they're still getting witness statements and they're still getting affidavits and declarations from people, but they haven't filed any. Uh, they just kind of go because the um, because of the issues with Warner's execution and the issue with drugs that ultimately led to Glossop's execution being stayed indefinitely and Oklahoma reworked their protocol, et cetera, et cetera. And then as soon as Oklahoma had a protocol using midazolam, the inmates filed a new challenge, which is the, what we talked about a little bit, a little while ago, kind of out of order. Um, so they didn't file anything, even though they're getting this new information, they didn't file it. Right. Okay. So they're not, they know it's not going to fly in court. They know they're not going to succeed in court. The only thing they have is court of public opinion to get people worked up thinking that an innocent man is going to be executed. Um, so they claim their innocence investigation continues. So they're not doing this objectively. They're looking for information that proves Colossal innocent. Uh, not letting the chips fall where they may. Um, then they start argue. Uh, he's he's basically this this letter which he released to the press. It's basically just for court of public opinion. They argue prior practice of the Oklahoma Dis District Attorney's Office. Um, they cite, I think, where you know former district attorneys lost their licenses for failure to pro provide evidence to defendants, um, which is not it, nobody involved. Smotherman and Ackley hadn't lost their licenses, hadn't been found to have done anything wrong in any case they'd ever prosecuted. But these other prosecutors had, so they bring that up. It's irrelevant. Right. It's just um, stuff. They, they want witness interview notes from both trials, and they cite wanting them for Jackie Williams and her daughter, Catherine K. Timmons, because there's apparently a dispute. Or at one point, uh, a report of a, an officer at the motel that, that evening says Jackie Williams told him, Sneed told her not to clean the rooms. But when she's interviewed by the DAs prior to the first trial, she says Glossop told her not to clean the downstairs rooms. So they want notes from the DAs or interview notes from police and DAs. And they cite other, con. you know, again, they cite irrelevant, cases of misconduct involving the DA's office that have no bearing on Glossop's case because they don't involve any of the DA's involved in Glossop's case at either first trial or second trial. 
Um, David Prater, he doesn't respond to that. Um, and he has no duty to respond to it because there's no legal action going on. And this is all stuff that could have been done prior to the first and second trial. This right, is all, all stuff, stuff that that's more likely than 20 not. 20 years later. Yeah, this is stuff that more likely than not is in somebody's file. And if Don Knight did not get the files from the prior attorneys, and, you know, Mark Hendrickson, he did Glossop's federal um, habeas. He should have a complete file. And if he won't give it to you, go online because the complete file is uploaded. Because I, I, I've downloaded big parts of that file. Right. My Pacer bill for the last three months was $96. <laughs> Cause I have downloaded so much from Glossop's so stuff from it. Um, so yeah, because Glossop's federal habeas claim came at a time when they were e filing everything. So um, he on January 8, 2021, Knight writes another letter to David Prater. And the letter, which he's releasing to the public, implies that Prater has some duty to respond and provide this information to Don Knight when he asked for it. Um, and between you and me, let's hope to God Bob Ruff doesn't get involved in this case. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, that sounds like Bob Ruff is Because between is Bob screaming. Ruff and Don Knight. <laughs> right. It's going to be a mess. So again, he informs Prater of a continuing investigation. Uh, but if you're investigating, why do you need Prater to provide you with stuff? I mean, you know, you're investigating. Exactly. You don't need to get it from the DA's office. Get it yourself. Um, uh, he cites a, a February 29, 2016 letter that he wrote requesting documents and evidence, which got no response. He complains about the October 8th letter getting no response. He requests interview notes for Ricky Great, which I don't know who that is. Uh, BMO interviewed him on April 21st or April 22nd, 1997. He requests interview notes for Donna Van Trees, Cliff Everhart, Donna Van Trees, Kevin Van Trees, who were interviewed by the DA, Billy Hooper, who was interviewed by the DA, Dr. Choi. Uh, these are requesting DA interview notes. Uh, and there's a question as to what, what is discoverable on that. Because notes often have impressions and strategy in addition to documenting what the witness said. So you don't necessarily have to provide that information. Uh, just as, you know, if, if they go and do a subpoena to gloss up second count, uh, counsel at trial for a second trial and say, we want all your witness interview notes. We want all your notes. You're not entitled to those. You're not going to get them. So, um, but anyway, they, they're asking for notes and 
um, another thing that happens too sometimes is police officers do it or did it at one time. They would keep like a notebook and write notes. And then when they produced a report, they wouldn't maintain the notes because the notes were just to, to right. you know, provide, give them, refresh their memory when they were preparing a report. And it might be a report that they're preparing that day, or it might be they're going to prepare it the next day. You know, so um, nowadays, I think it's more, I think more officers do keep notes and do keep them available. Um, but sometimes it's funny that they'll, they'll look at something that's not in the notes, but it's in the report. Or it's in the report, not in the, or it's not in the report. It's in the notes, uh, and and parsing testimony, and parsing statements. Well, he said this, but he didn't say it at trial. Right. Therefore, he's lying. Right. Even though you know, again, that's not how it works. Just as with defense witnesses, that's not necessarily how it works. Exactly. Um, they seek general discovery because the files from prior, prior attorneys are incomplete. Well, that's just too bad. So sad. Sucks to be you, doesn't it? Um, polygraph documentation because of Patricia High's questions at the 2014 clemency hearing. They found no evidence of polygraph in defense files. Uh, they note that BMO testified about the polygraph on April 23rd, 1997. Um, that he also testified outside the jury's presence on June 8, 1998. Uh, they note that Glossop testified. They note that the, the uh, polygraph was administered by someone named Powers on January 9th. Uh, based on a 2000 interview, they have a hearing request by Lynn Birch, but no records produced in January 2003. Uh, they have an email on the 23rd of October 2003 to Smother Smotherman from Birch or another uh, Glossop's other attorney saying the records hadn't been produced. So they were seeking them, but they don't ever file a motion to compel. You know, we've asked for these and we've asked for these having the court say, y'all need to get these. Um, so, which leads me to believe that maybe they did get them, they weren't helpful, and so they didn't use them, uh, because the last time they, uh, there's any reference to the polygraph results is a request by Hendrickson. So, prior to Glossop's second trial, the last thing they mentioned is 2003, October, and then nothing. They don't file a motion with the court to compel <clears throat> or to seek the court to order the prosecution to provide the polygraph. Which again suggests that the polygraph was provided. Then Henriksen requests it in 2014, but he didn't file anything seeking it when it's not produced. And Knight implies that the absence of documentation impugns the liability of the claim that Glossop failed. Uh, and they also request documentation for polygraphs administered to Wood and Sneed. And this is where you know, you know that the only purpose of any of this bullshit 
is court of public opinion is because after his list of what he wants, he says, if no document, no, <clears throat> no documentation exists, Knight needs to know about your efforts for future court filings and statements to the press. This, you're right. He is ballsy. Um, so, you know, he's not, this isn't, this isn't about Glossop's legal rights. Right. This is just, about this isn't about here. pursuing these claims in court. This is about working the public up into a frenzy thinking that an innocent man is going to die for a crime he didn't exactly yep. or i'll go one step further a crime that didn't occur because if sneed killed van Trees and a robbery gone bad there was no murder for hire right uh he goes on to uh ask for the sinclair videotape which is the the sinclair service station was across the parking lot from the motel the videotape showed the interior of the store it didn't show the motel it didn't show uh the gas pumps or any of that stuff it just showed the interior of the store this was 1997 you know little cameras right. with good yeah. picture were not cheap exactly um so they want that videotape and suddenly in 2021, they decide, oh, let's start bitching about that now. Um, the videotape was seized, according to a report in 1997. There was a motion to produce it filed by Fornerat on May 28, 1998. Fern Smith, who was prosecutor at the first trial uh, in a hearing, apparently said the tape had no value. That, you know, she had watched it, showed the inside of the store, didn't show anything, and that the state wasn't planning on using it. Fornerat said he didn't need it if she wasn't going to use it, and that was the end of it in advance of Glossop's first trial. In 2003, the, the, the defense wanted the tape, and efforts were renewed, um, but it's unclear what really happened i mean smotherman in a hearing said there was not the tape wasn't in evidence the tape wasn't with the da's office a tape wasn't logged in so i don't know of a tape uh nobody's seen a tape nobody's looked at a tape all you've got is fern smith's statement at the first trial that it had no value and then he brings up destruction of evidence prior to the second trial, but a tape was never mentioned. He speculates that a tape could be exculpatory, but we've got Kayla Persley's testimony about who came in and out of the store. Uh, and in fact, we've got her testimony that when Sneed came in, he was alone. So how would that be exculpatory? And again, he says, if no documentation exists, he needs to know about your efforts for future court filings and statements to the press. Uh, he wants fingerprint evidence because unidentified prints were found, but were never run through APHIS. He wants uh, the evidence in Barry's trunk. There was blue dye on 16 $100 bills. 
dye packs are used at banks. Although I think, I don't think banks use blue dye or I don't think all banks use blue dye. I think some banks use red dye and orange dye. Right. I think that's right. Because that actually is more, even more obvious than blue dye. Yeah, exactly. Or bright um, pink. Or bright pink. Yeah. Uh, but dye is used in bank and he assumes the money had come from a bank robbery. But this is a motel dealing in cash with unsavory guests. Yeah, this is not the Ritz Carlton. So unless you're saying Barry Van Treese was out robbing banks. The blue dye is immaterial. And actually, contrary to the allegations being made by Glossop's advocates, um, the serial numbers of the, the stain bills were taken down and were researched. And there was testimony at, I believe, both the first and second trial that nothing came of the investigation of those bills. They weren't found to be connected to a robbery. They weren't found to be connected to any criminal activity. And um, they had been returned to the Vantries family shortly after the murder because there was $23,100 in bills, including those 16 $100 bills. Um, they allege that uh, they have a witness who tells them Barry Vantries was laundering cash, which to me, this is one of the most sickest most disgusting things that Richard Glossop and his advocates are doing. Now they're accusing Barry Van Treese of criminal activity based on somebody who comes forward 20 years later who probably doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. They just want attention. Exactly. Are they just Asia want, they just think that he's innocent so they're going to help him exactly yeah that's exactly right and so yeah i knew barry ventries he was laundering cash he was a big old crook yeah uh they want to corroborate the witness who told them this information and again it goes back to what you said it that would have been you know let's just say hypothetically that is true that would be a very good alternative suspect why wouldn't have you come forward in 1997 well they say this, they say this could all identify alternate suspects but what what do you need alternate suspects exactly. you got the murderer who confessed what alternate suspects are you looking for right well we'll we'll get into that more prop more likely than not probably next week and i'm i'm gonna be really livid when we get to that part um, they also want all evidence uh, collected to prosecute Sneed. They claim Sneed was living in room 217, which is absolutely wrong. He was in 117. Uh, how stupid are you, Don Knight? Uh, they claim room the room contained evidence of Sneed's drug use and friends and associates. They speculate about Sneed's motives. They uh, point to a May 8, 1997 letter from a guy named Fred McFadden claiming that Sneed bragged about killing Barry and mentioned the possibility of testifying. McFadden wanted to testify. Again, Knight needs to know if there's no documentation or none of this stuff is available because 
he's either going to have to use it in court filings or make statements to the press about it. Um, and again, this is all the, these are all things that his first defense attorney and his second defense attorneys could have asked for. It's all stuff that Mark Henriksen could have asked for when he was doing state and federal post-conviction. Um, it's not new just because you thought to ask for it now and get it now. You know what I'm saying? It's all stuff. Somebody could have done this years ago. They didn't need Don Knight to come from Colorado and show them how to do it. Exactly. Um, then they also sought uh, information about the document and evidence destruction policies for, I think, both DA and police. Uh, because they argue all evidence should be available because this is a capital murder case. They bring up the destruction of the box containing the shower curtain, duct tape, documents, envelope with note, excuse me, glasses, wallet, knives, keys, deposit book, and receipt book that were destroyed in 1999 prior to the 2004 trial. They argue that documents were just, uh, provided to return to Donovan Trees, and then she either lost or destroyed them. Apparently, there were financial documents in the trunk that were returned to Donovan Trees. Donovan Trees had them by the time of the first trial. She brought them to the first trial. They were not copied. And Glossop's attorneys didn't seek to have them copied. And then she took them back uh, after the trial. And then there was a flood that before the second trial and that destroyed those documents um again glossop's attorney did not seek to have them when his trial his conviction was reversed in 2001 nobody reached out and said hey let's contact donna vantrice she brought these financial documents she testified about them we want to get a copy of them and get a court to order a copy you go in you tell the court what you need the court says okay here you go you know um, and he alleges police investigation was not competent, which, again, they could have challenged the, the competency and, and effectiveness of the police investigation at the first trial, second trial, direct appeal, post-conviction state, post-conviction federal, and request a response within seven days. Um, again, no response. I'm sure Knight was just bristling. How dare Prater not respond? Perhaps it was because Knight did not include affidavits <laughs> with those letters. So Prater didn't think he was serious. Um, the next letter from Knight is 5-14-2021. And you know why we know about these? Because Knight released them to the press. Because this say, is all I, court of public opinion. Yeah, he's, he's definitely consistent. He will keep just writing letters and sending it out to the press. And holding press conferences. Right. Yes. Um, he he claims now that the, the DA's files contain Brady and, and Giglio material, Giglio, Giglio, I don't know how it's pronounced, materials, but he doesn't really identify exactly what specific items are Brady, but just that he knows the DA's file contain these things. Um, he says this is not a fishing expedition, which to me means... It's a fucking fishing expedition. Exactly. Um, now he's requesting inf information about William Bender. He's looking for impeachment evidence. He has a police report that has inconsistent statements made by Bender. 
Uh, he assumes that at least some minimal follow-up was done after the initial report, uh, but he doesn't have statements from Bender. Uh, assumption is based on the content of the report, which was typed on March 4th, 1997 by Cook. He requests BMO's notes and recordings of Bender's statements. He wants follow-up by OCPD of Bender. He speculates about Bender's statements and what he meant and what he meant to say and what happened. And um, these letters are quite entertaining. They're, they're, you know, they're more chaff than wheat. Um, he uh, says that OCPD should have gotten phone records to confirm that Bender called Glossop on 1897, um, which Bender says he called Glossop admits he called Glossop recounts what he said. Bender recounts what Glossop said to him. So what exactly are the phone records supposed to do? This is where, you know, uh, well, this will corroborate. Well, they corroborate. You know, they may disagree on the content of the conversation, but they each admit to a conversation. Um. You know, I don't know. I think they're just pulling. I, I, I think Don Knight, in addition to having big balls, likes to pull shit out of his ass. Yep. Well, and they, you know, like, you know, you see it a lot of these. They just, they, they throw a bunch. Again, it's not really about proving anything. It's just getting people worked up. And you see this time and time again. They, mm -hmm. incompetent police, corrupt. You know, there's all, you know, oh, why didn't they do this? You know, all these little nitpicky things that... You know, I right. guess you could say in a perfect world, yes, all of these things are always done perfectly. But, you know, in any case, in the real over, world, yeah, in the real world, people make little bitty mistakes, but none of them are material. Mm -hmm. uh, then he said Bender should have been a suspect, even though Bender <laughs> at the time Barry was killed was in Tulsa. And they have nothing that shows Barry, the Bender driving from Tulsa to Oklahoma City and being anywhere near the best budget in in Oklahoma City that he should have been a suspect because he asked police about room 102 and if Barry was dressed when he was found. Uh, even though that could have been based on his conversation with Glossop. Um, uh, they, uh, they say he, the police should have information on Bender's wife and he wants that. And he says, Bender provided new information at the 2004 trial. And he says that the information he's requesting is critical to their innocence investigation on May 17, 2021, good old Kevin McDougal. Um, this, this guy is like. I don't know what to make of this man because he really, he cannot be that naive as a state representative for the state of Oklahoma. And he's naive and things he says are naive. Um, he addresses this letter to Stitt and the Pardon and Parole Board. Um, and Boy, if only that pardon and parole board had gotten in on the game. But Glossop didn't have an execution date, so 
there was no way for them to get involved. Um, he requests an independent investigation in Barry, Barry Ventrice's death based on allegedly newly discovered evidence of new witness statements and expert reports and other, other evidentiary problems that Knight has been talking about since 2015, by the way. He claims to support the death penalty, but claims there's a moral obligation to make sure Oklahoma doesn't execute a person for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, he has pause about gossip's guilt because a police investigation was not conducted in a manner that engenders confidence that we know the truth. Well, last time I checked, McDougal is neither a lawyer nor a former police officer or investigator. I don't quite know what McDougal did before he got into politics, but it's my understanding he's neither a lawyer nor a police investigator. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be wrong. Um, and I'm actually going to give a shout out to uh, Katrina and Shannon. I meant to do this at the beginning, and I'm going to do it now because I just thought of it. They both reached out to me on Facebook. John Ramsey is alive and well. And I was mistaken when I said he had recently passed. Thank you, Shannon and Katrina, for keeping me honest. Um, so he has paused because of the investigation wasn't up to his standards claims. There's now evidence that Sneed had a female accomplice who was in the room and claims she should be brought to justice. That evidence is a statement from somebody who worked at a strip club to Don Knight that was obtained in 2019. So it's late to file that shit at the OCCA. Um, he reiterates that the state is at risk of killing an innocent person if Glossop is executed. Uh, he's allowed, he claims Oklahoma is allowing one of the real murderers to escape justice. And oh, guess what? By the name, we don't know, by the way, we don't know the real name for this person, this girl. Um, we know her name is either Fancy or Mercedes. Spoiler alert because that's going to come in more next week. Um, he claims lawyers forgot loss of recovered new evidence and agreeing to turn it over to an independent investigator. He requests information by the DA's office or any police or law enforcement agency that investigated the case be turned over to an independent investigator with a report to be made to the PVV. He claims any clemency decision should be based on thorough and complete investigation. Uh, he says the only way the cloud of doubt can be lifted and we can be confident that Justin is done one way or the other is if we have this independent investigation. And I just I just see McDougal want to burst into tears every time he talks about poor Richard Glossop. <laughs> Sorry, I had to be a bit dramatic. McDougal possessed me for a moment. <laughs> yeah, but he... I kicked his ass out. <laughs> No, he does not. He was he was a former Marine, but does not look like he has a law enforcement or a what law. What did he background. do? What did he do for work? It looks like, well, I was looking at him while we were talking, and it looks like it is interesting. He has a business called Lawyer Marketing Services, a digital ad agency. Looks like he's kind of in marketing and a motivational speaker because he talks about that. Yeah, he it's it is funny though. He does. He 
he worked for this company that does do like dash cams for police uh-huh. cars where he was a sales director, but it does okay. look like he has a lot of motivational speaking. Like he is a John Maxwell certified speaker and okay. the, uh, Oh, I'm just blanking. Where's the other, the other one that's so popular. One of the other um, uh, yeah. motivational speakers and the letter that he Tony said, Robbins, I think. Okay. Oh yeah. Apparently um, he's gotten into some trouble. Recently. I think he has. That's right. Um, and there was apparently some very salacious information uh, that made it into the public domain during Kevin McDougal's divorce. So um, I wonder if that will impact his bid for reelection. Uh, his letter is signed by 28 state representatives and six state senators. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's missing from Kevin McDougal's letter is any effort to look at the court opinions, speak to the prosecution, even speaking to the Van Trees family. And while the um, uh, while the statements that they've made, they kind of pay lip service. Oh, we're so sorry for the Van Trees family. No, you're not. Because you're trying to say that the person who wanted their father, husband, dead, brother, dead, who arranged it and who thought he was going to get away scot-free is actually innocent. When everything says otherwise and he hasn't even looked at he's he's looking for he's got confirmation bias basically just like night confirmation bias you're looking for what makes him innocent and you're closing your eyes to what makes him guilty um so then nothing happened um they're trying to push a bill which we'll talk about a little bit more next week which will kind of basically supplant court's authority if the executive branch doesn't agree with the way the courts have dealt with a case that will supplant the judicial branch by making it the ultimately the executive branch's decision on whether somebody is innocent or guilty and that is what they're trying to do with Glossop with this quote innocence investigation um on february 28th 2022 the uh group and oh i only mentioned mcdougall there's a guy named humphrey who's an idiot in a cowboy hat um and there's a couple of other guys there's a bald guy that is equally an idiot um who all you know stand up there and like oh well we you know we're really sorry for the van trees family but we don't think richard glossop is guilty because justin sneed is a drug addict and he's a liar he's a liar 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 um they have a press conference and they say Richard Glossop is innocent. So, you know, they haven't talked to the DA. They haven't looked at the court opinions. They haven't seen why his legal claims were denied. They just say the, the mechanisms available to him were inadequate. Um, they say uh, that the inmates have limited time to bring new evidence and courts don't consider that new evidence. They are concerned about execution of someone for a crime they didn't commit. They want to pass a bill to appoint an independent body to inv- investigate innocence claims. Uh, 
of death row inmates. Well, first of all, they're not independent if they're looking at innocence claims. They're not independently investigating a case. They're independently investigating. They are a partisan investigatory body for innocence claims. So if he says he's innocent, they'll go out and prove it. And that is exactly what they want. The ad hoc committee, which they formed this ad hoc committee, trying to get the governor and the parole board to do it. Governor parole board ignored them as they should, uh, because it's not the job of the legislature or the executive branch to investigate crime, to investigate cases, to investigate guilt or innocence. That's not their job. That's the job of the judicial branch. And, you know, Glossop has had the benefit of direct appeal, state post-conviction, federal habeas, successive application of state post-conviction. And the reason he didn't get review is because he didn't present anything new or anything that was compelling of actual innocence. You know, he presented a lot of re-argument of things that were raised on his direct appeal. Um, so the ad hoc committee could obtain the pro bono services of Reed Smith, a Texas law firm, to investigate Richard Glossop's innocence. Again, not investigate Richard Glossop's case. They're investigating his innocence. And that is how they frame it. And Reed Smith is not an independent unbiased, objective investigator. Reed Smith works is, uh, is aligned with the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project, in addition to making money with donations, makes money more likely than not when they exonerate somebody from civil claims against the jurisdictions that right. imprison those people. Exactly. And but, you know, just lip service, McDougal says, if the report says he's guilty, he should be executed. So. Um, so that was that is where they hired Reed Smith. They had. Um, I'm not sure if they I think they did have somebody from Reed Smith and Amy Kingery, one of our former guests, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in a bonus episode, which I will link on Facebook so that people can listen to it again. Uh, Amy Kingery was actually present at that press conference. And um, she asked some very pointed questions, which the uh, people holding the press conference were unable to answer. And interestingly enough, apparently, and I hope I'm not overstepping mentioning this, she apparently soon got a letter from Reed Smith demanding that she provide them with documents that she referenced in her questions. Of course, she was not bound to do so and so did not. Um, yeah, and they, I mean, you know, they want, they want to set up a commission with subpoena power, with power to compel um, DAs to provide and police to provide documents and, and records and, evidence and all these things so that they can reinvestigate cases. I'd say that's a waste of taxpayer money. 
if you don't like the way the legal system is working, then fine. Say if somebody claims they're innocent, then they get another round of, of post-conviction review just by saying they're innocent or say they don't have to bring it within 60 days. Say they can bring it within a year. I mean, you know, Oklahoma statutes are written the way they're written. So if you don't like the way the court works, then you're a legislator. Exactly. Yeah. Right law that you changes. can change it. Exactly. Fine, ex extend the time. But you know right. what? That won't save Richard Glossop because a lot of the information that he's relying on now, he's had since 2019. And we'll talk about all that more next week. Uh, two weeks from today, because I think I, I think it's better for us to be on the two week schedule. Got it. Yeah. Well, and you know, and two, like you said, in some of these other cases, you know, over this long period of time, it's a lot easier. You know, memories fade, witnesses pass away. So if you're promoting, you know, some craziness, you know, alternative theory, or you're claiming innocence. It's a lot easier to do it 20 years later because, mm -hmm. again, potential contradictory witnesses or contradictory evidence, stuff's harder to get. And so it's a lot easier, you know, to proclaim it 20 years later than, you know, right. close to the fact, which is that's one of the reasons they say, look, you know, if you're going to if you're going to claim something, you have a limited time to do it. You can't just continue on into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of this, I mean, literally, a lot of this is just re-arguing things that have been argued before. It's right. not new evidence. It's you have found a new angle yes. to attack from. Exactly. And so that is where you're going to go. Uh, but that's not, that's not necessarily doesn't give it any more merit. Right. So... Um, so we'll be back in two weeks with the, we'll look at the Reed Smith report and we'll look at, we'll kind of preview the state post-conviction claim that was filed, um, but we may not talk about it in depth because it's going to probably still be pending unless um, the state files an update files a response Glossop replies and the OCCA renders a decision within a day or two of that um, they have ordered the state to respond in 20 days from Friday so that would be roughly um, it's going to be a little bit past two weeks let me see i'm going to try and do this without killing us all i have a date calculator program that i use that's really helpful mm -hmm. so um let's see 07 2022 add 20 days count all days the only thing I hate about this program, it defaults to excluding weekends and holidays. And that's going to be Thursday, August 11th, 2022, that that's due. 
So, um, and two weeks from today is going to be August 14th. No, August 7th. So, yeah, August 7th will be two weeks from today. So um, their response isn't due. They may file it earlier. I don't know. So um, we'll see how, how that goes. And then once that post-conviction, he has an execution date in September. And we'll see. He's got a clemency hearing coming up later in August. So we'll see how that whole thing comes, pans out. And we'll probably have a part four follow-up yeah. um, follow and for the sake of the Van Trees family and the people that Glossop has manipulated and hurt over the course of the years of his life, I'm hoping that this is his last gasp and that he is um, that the horseshoe up his ass that kept him from being executed in 2015 has fallen out <laughs> and that he is now going to um, be served the justice that he deserves. And um, for those who think, well, what about all this stuff? But you know, it does, it doesn't matter. Sneed, even if Sneed was a raging meth addict, that just means that Glossop wound him up and pointed him at Barry Ventries and let him go do the dirty work. Exactly. It doesn't change. You can say, well, he doesn't have any credibility. You can't believe his testimony. You can't believe his statements. Uh, again, that's opinion. That's not evidence. That's opinion. And Well, and he's had... You know, he could have done all these this years, years to recant. Ago. Exactly. Yeah. If he was lying, you know, and I mean, odds are, I mean, he's serving life in prison. You know, the odds are if he were to say, OK, look, I lied, I made it all up. There's really probably I mean, you're the legal expert, but there's not really an easy legal way for then all of a sudden they'd have to go retry him to give him the death penalty, which I seriously doubt they would do. So if yeah. he truly made it up, Re he could come out and say any time, hey, I did make it all up. He didn't have anything to do with it. Um, recantations at this stage in the game are not generally something that the courts look upon favorably. Right. Especially a case that, that gets this kind of court of public opinion attention. Um, exactly. In 2015, the people who visited Justin Sneed were an attorney for Glossop and Sister Helen Prejean. And I'm sure they were all trying to get Sneed to recant. Absolutely. Um, so if he were to recant now, but even again, taking all of Sneed's statements out of the mix and the evidence that I cited doesn't rely on anything Sneed said. Exactly. It relies yeah, even on the if fact he... 
it relies on the fact that there's no evidence that Sneed knew where Barry kept the money. Right. He may have known Barry always had a lot of money, but he didn't know where it was kept. Exactly. Well, yeah, and even if Sneed did recant, I wouldn't necessarily put a lot of faith into it. But I definitely, the fact that he hasn't, to me, yeah. just points that he is credible. Because yeah. at this point, why would he hold on to, you know, if he wasn't telling the truth, why would he keep it up at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, again, you know, the, the evidence he kept glossing. Sneed said, I killed him. And Glossop's like, okay, go get a piece of plexiglass to put over the broken window. And went back to bed and went back to sleep. And got up and went shopping with his girlfriend. When the police came, when they found his car, Glossop didn't say, okay, look, this is what happened. He's in room 102. And Justin Sneed did it. And another important detail that they ignore is that during his questioning, the name Glossop referred to was Justin Taylor. Taylor was his stepbrother's last name, not his. Justin Taylor was an alias used by Justin Sneed. He never referred to him as Justin Sneed. And I don't think police were looking for Justin Sneed until they found Justin Taylor. Interesting. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are, uh, there are a lot of things. And the eighth, when he's questioned by police, he lied to him. He admits he lied. And then on the ninth, he says, I'm sorry, I lied. I was afraid of losing my girlfriend. You know, and he can paint the puppy roses and rainbow picture of his relationship with Barry Ventries all he wants. But given some of the things he said during his interview about how he did all this good stuff for the man and the man still was hard on him. Um, and, you know, he says, I cleaned that motel up. Well, if you clean the motel up, then why was it still known as a den of drugs and prostitution? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could kind of see it. This is kind of that classic tale. You hear this a lot where you kind of have a guy who he believes that he has a right. He's been running it by himself. He feels like he's done all this good work. He feels like he's effectively, you know, owns the place by sweat equity, can do whatever he wants to do. Mm -hmm. He's got his little scam going where he's making, you know, like you said, probably renting rooms on the side, letting drug dealers going on, probably getting a little cut of that. He's got his little thing going and he feels like he deserves it. And how dare this old man show up after being gone and being, you know, less involved, less engaged for a while. And all of a sudden this guy's just going to show up and put an end to that at best. And at worst, he might actually, you know, get arrested for theft. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah. he has a very strong motive. It makes total sense. And as he even said, he was so worried about losing his girlfriend. All of a sudden, he's not going to be able to get her the boobs, the Camaro and the baby if he doesn't have a job or if he's been arrested. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that was a, like a multitude. It's not one thing. And again, I can't stress this enough. His conviction was not based. If you talk to if you look at the interview done with one of the jurors at the second trial, they didn't take, they took Sneed's testimony with a grain of salt. They didn't put a lot of 
uh, faith in it. But at the end of the day, what Sneed said made sense and what Glossop said didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, um, all right. Well, that is, I think that, that wraps us up. We'll be back in two weeks with part three and we'll look at the Reed Smith report and the issues that he's raising on his third state post-conviction claim. Excellent. We'll look forward to it. All right. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and guest host Kyle. Uh, although I think I'm going to say Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Co-host Kyle. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us in two weeks for episode 14, State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop, part three. We'll talk about the so-called independent investigation by Reed Smith and preview the issues raised by Glossop in his third state post-conviction application, which was filed on July 1st, 2022. Until then, have a safe two weeks and we'll be back. Good night. Thank you.